Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. If you are caring for a person with autism, great information from a trusted source can be a lifeline. We hope today's conversation will help you create success for the extraordinary individual with autism in your life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I am the vice president here at Autism Spectrum Therapies, agency providing uh, primarily ABA services, but general resources and support to individuals and families of kids with developmental disabilities. Um, we are actually a provider all across the country, really kind of exciting, all the different places that uh, we're in and, and actually about to, uh, to go to. I'm really excited about some, uh, some work we're going to be doing in Maryland um, this coming summer, which will be really, really exciting. Um, I don't know if you guys know who are return listeners and, and for new people, I'm, I'm a board-certified behavior analyst. Uh, or a BCBA, so I'm really an ABA guy. It's it's something I've been doing now for 13 years, and um, I've really just gotten an opportunity to see a lot of different things uh, over that span. Um, I'm, I'm constantly, I guess, amazed uh, is probably too strong of a word, but but the one that comes to me right now about how. You know, being part of this ABA and this autism community in all these different places has has really kind of uh, shaped my point of view and, and also how different it can be in all these different environments and all these different communities that I've uh, been a part of and I've practiced in. Um, you know, today is actually a show I'm really excited about. Uh, it is, uh, in a weird way, kind of like a, a flashback show for us uh, a few months ago. I had the opportunity to do our very first live, face-to-face, uh, in-person conversation for uh, for the podcast, and I got to New Orleans, and I, I'm, I was talking to our guests, and I was really excited, and we had this amazing dialogue, and sure enough, everything went great. And the moment I started to try and upload everything, that's where technology went haywire and things kind of fell apart. Uh, so it's, it's taken us a little while to, to get everything scheduled. You know, the springtime is always just such a busy time for, for everybody, um, especially for the, uh, the organization that our guest is a part of. But I'm really excited that we're starting off the summer with just an incredible guest and uh, who's just such a great perspective and so much to offer. And I, and I talked about this a, a little bit right after it happened, uh, starting off one of our shows, is uh, someone who actually taught me a lot. And so I'm excited to have these conversations, maybe expand on them a bit, um, and share some of the things that uh, we talked about the first time. So uh, today I'm going to be joined by uh, Mary Jacob. And Mary is the Executive Director of the Louisiana Parent Training and Information Center, um, as well as Families Helping Families of Jefferson Parish. Uh, She's the mother of two daughters with disabilities and spent the past 25 years advocating for inclusive education opportunities and services for her daughters, as well as for all children with disabilities. 
Uh, Mary's spoken nationally about her experience raising two children with disabilities and is a relentless advocate for children with all disabilities. Mary, welcome back to the show. I am so glad we were able to, uh, to set this up again. You're welcome. Thanks for having me back. Sorry it's taken so long. Uh, you know what? I'm just so glad we did it. I, I, I had said kind of right after the fact that, uh, you know, this was one of my the, – the show we recorded and lost was actually one of my favorite conversations. So I'm, I'm really excited that we're going to get to do it again and, and this time share it with everybody now that we've got a, a better recording set up. Um, you know, I, I thought maybe the, the best place to start, since we have so many listeners who maybe aren't familiar with, uh, with the Louisiana Parent Training and Information Center, maybe we could start talking a little bit about what that is as well as what Families Helping Families is. Sure. Um, Louisiana Parent Training and Information Center is the um, U.S. Department of Education federally funded parent training and information center for Louisiana. Each state has at least one Parent Training and Information Center that's funded through Part D of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and it all goes by the population of your state determines how many centers you actually have, and our population is small, so we only have one, but we are a statewide entity, and the project is the project of Families Helping Families of Jefferson, which is a family resource center that provides an array of um, services and supports to families um, that have children and adults with disabilities. That's great. I mean, it's, it's, I, I've gotten to interact with the program a little bit through the different conferences you guys have put on, and I'm, just, I'm always just amazed by the, just the wealth of information that you guys have to offer. I know it's a lot of the, the families we work with, you know, just rave about the support and the resources given. Um, and I know a big part of it is that it's, you know, it's parents helping parents. It's not you know, just people in, like, the, a state system. It's, you know, people who have gone through similar experiences, correct? That is correct. Everybody that works here that provides support to parents or themselves parents of children with disabilities. So we've all kind of walked that walk, navigated the systems. We pretty much all know where the roadblocks are. We know how to kind of yeah. run around them, go under them, over them, whatever it takes. We know how to tell parents, um, you know, where to expect problems so that they don't um, – get real exasperated and give up on services because of some of the processes that are set up by state um, people um, isn't always the most family-friendly processes. So yeah. sometimes you just have to kind of roll with the punches and, and do what they want you to do, do the dance like we say, and yeah. just know that many times during that dance you may change partners, you know, so it's okay. It's, it's You're going to get to the end eventually. Well, you know, I, I think it's so great just kind of what you said because of, you know, I, I think to different IEP meetings or different situations I've been in as kind of a provider, maybe working with a parent, and, you know, it, it can be very hard to find someone to help you got, navigate that system or even to help you advocate. And, and just the, the types of parents who are involved in the organization and the types of guidance they give, I mean, they're advocates as much as anything else, and that's such a valuable resource that can be expensive as well as hard to find. And the fact that you guys offer this service free is just is just always impressed me. Thank you, thank you. It's it's you know we have been dependent on for a long time on um, our federal grant, um, the mm -hmm. IDEA grant we get from the U.S. Department of Education that allows us to do that, and we also get some state funding that allows us to do that also. But it is it's um, our advocates, um, our education advocates, which we call these people. Um, mm -hmm. 
do provide a valuable um, service to families. And, you know, one of our goals is not to just fix problems within the systems, but it's mm-hmm. to truly teach parents how to navigate those systems. We believe that if, a power, if we can empower the parent with the knowledge that they need to understand how that IEP process should work, that at the end of that meeting, the child is going to, we're going to have a decent IEP for that child, and the child's going yeah. to get the best services they can get. We try not to go in there and, you know, do anything that remotely looks like that we're um, taking charge or bullying people or anything. Mm-hmm. We just want we just want the systems and the schools to follow the process, the IEP process that is established in IDEA, and and. Do it the way it's supposed to be done. You know, do it to true fidelity. Don't take shortcuts or anything. Make sure that we have the data we need to make decisions for this child so that this child hopefully one day will be a productive adult in society and and be able to have a meaningful adult life. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I, I find really interesting, and, and I know I talked to you about this a little bit in the past, is, you know, I, I'm in California. I grew up on the East Coast. I've, I've spent a lot of time, you know, in the New Orleans area and, and working with, with providers and families um, as well as a bunch of other states and, and regions. And it's, you know, it, it's really interesting to see, like, the different perspectives and, and the different issues that are facing communities. Sometimes they're unique, and sometimes it's like we don't realize that we're all facing similar things and similar problems. Or, um, and I was, so I was curious, like, what... You know, where do you see, like, the major issues uh, for kids with disabilities right now? Well, there's, there's a couple of issues that we see regularly. Um, one of them is, is some um, problems with the what we call RTR, response to intervention, um, mm. set up, and that um, school systems seem to believe that a child cannot be evaluated while they're going through the RTI process. So children that were born with disabilities, these are not children that um, have suspected learning disabilities. These are children Mm -hmm. that we know that um, has already been identified as having autism or we know they have Down syndrome or we know they have maybe some other type of genetic um, disorder. Um, We know, you know, history has taught us that these kids are going to need services. There's, you know, there's no doubt they're going to need services. But some systems still want to put them through the RTI process to determine do they really need services or not. So that's one of the issues we're seeing um, here. Another big problem that's coming up um, that's growing larger here in Louisiana and especially in the New Orleans area is the charter school movement. We have more charter schools than ever, and charter schools want to select who they accept. And sometimes they're not accepting children with disabilities, or they only want to accept the ones with speech impairments. So they get a little bit of speech therapy, and everybody's happy, and they're saying that, you know, those are the 10% of kids we have with disabilities, mm-hmm. but they're really staying away from kids with more complex disabilities, which is illegal because they're supposed to be accepting children with disabilities. So that's another issue that we're seeing um, here. You know, we we will always see problems with kids, and are they in the least restrictive environment or not? Um, We've been hearing about inclusion forever, and we would think, you know, it should be over with by now, but there are still people that believe that children with disabilities need to be segregated and that they don't need to be um, educated in their least restrictive environment with typical peers to the greatest extent possible. So, you know, we still fight those battles on a regular basis, unfortunately. and I don't think any of those things are unique to us. I think that those are probably um, nationally 
things that are happening out there. And then we have a big thing, too, also with the whole um, restraint and seclusion, you know, to children um, with some significant behavior disorders. Are schools doing what they need to do to truly identify what the manifestation is of that behavior and, and are they addressing the behavior and how to redirect it? Or are mm-hmm. they just deciding that we're going to restrain the child because they act in this way or they're a runner or they're whatever we want to, we want to call them and not really teach them appropriate behaviors or replacement behaviors? Yeah, the, the school piece, you know, it's something that I've actually been surprised probably over the last year. I, I've, I've been to schools in about half a dozen different states, and I was so surprised by the, I guess, the unwillingness almost to kind of bring in those behavior experts to address these issues, um, you know, these behavior problems, and then you hear all this conversation instead about, well, we use this seclusion tactic or we use this restraint tactic, and it was, it was very shocking. To me. And that, I, I couldn't believe that. And I know, obviously, as you said, it's an issue for you in, in your community as well. Yeah, you, you broke up there a little bit, but I think I understood what you were saying. And yes, you're okay. right. They, they, there is some resistance to bringing in professionals. Um, sometimes some of the school districts will hire people within that they mm-hmm. are kind of deem the expert of the field, and that's what their title is. And some right. of these people do have some really good um, credentials and and can help. Um, you know, sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's just that's your title, and you don't. You know, you really don't know any more than. The classroom teacher knows, and some classroom teachers know how to deal with this, and some don't. One of the things we see oh, is yeah. that, you know, it's kind of like as a parent, you know, you hear this. Um, this is kind of like I call it parenting 101. You pick your mm-hmm. battles with your children. You know, you're not going to fight everything, yeah. and some things you're just going to let go. Well, to me, it's no different than behaviors in schools. Um, mm-hmm. You pick the battles of what you're going to really fight in school, and what behaviors you're going, you're going to just let go. Um, you know, even children without disabilities exhibit behaviors that we don't always approve or like, but for whatever reason, they don't seem to get in trouble as much as a kid with a disability does with it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think it's just sometimes it's common sense parenting and common sense teaching. It's, you know, we're not going to send the child, send them out the room or suspend them or put them in time out for every time that they do something that we think is inappropriate, Um, especially in a society where we're becoming more and more um, culturally um, aware that certain behaviors, you know, in, in certain, I'm learning that in certain, um, in certain cultures that children will never make eye contact with you as an adult. It's just not appropriate, you know. And and if you expect that, it's not going to happen. So don't penalize a child because it's a culture that they grew up in and that and is enforced in their home and with their family members, you know, the adult family members or the elder family members. So there's just certain things that, you know, you can and can't get away with. And, and I think as adults we need to respect more of that. And we need to not pick on every little thing or all we're going to do is, try to change behaviors constantly, and the child will never learn. Yeah, it's almost like, you know, that pick every little thing. Like, I feel like I see that a lot. It's that, okay, we're going to watch this kid like a hawk at a level that we wouldn't necessarily watch every other child in this classroom. And I see that a lot with the kids with autism I work with, even especially actually when they're in the least restrictive environment. It's like, like, okay, he did this. But, like, what is everyone else in this classroom doing? Uh, but, like, every eye is on this child. It almost like they, whether maybe they don't want that child there, maybe there's um, a greater degree of pressure or, or perceived pressure because of an IEP process 
you know, it could be a lot of different things, but it feels like we nitpick everything, especially in, in those environments. We, we positively do, and it's a shame. It's a shame. It could be something as basic as, um, you know, they don't have the right color belt on today, or their shoes are mm-hmm. wrong, or, or their shirt's untucked, or, you know, or it could be something much more significant than that. Um, you know, I went to a IEP meeting for behavior, um, you know, it's been a while now, it's probably six months ago or so, where, and it's not appropriate behavior, the child was throwing things at the teacher, and I'll be the first to say that's not appropriate behavior, everybody agreed it yeah. wasn't appropriate behavior, and the child was up to be um, removed from the school and placed in an alternative setting, so I asked, us, well, let's look, at, let's look at the data and let's look at the behavior intervention plan and see what you've been doing to stop this. Well, lo and behold, they haven't done anything. Nothing was there. There was no behavior intervention plan. There was no data. She could tell me it happens all the time, but she couldn't tell me what happened, you know, what was happening immediately before that happened. And, and mm-hmm. it's like, well, well you know, we got to stop and, and go back here. we got to – you have to have some sort of data to be able to show that nothing's working, that, that you've tried this, this, and this. I said – the child threw something at me. Yeah, I'd be mad. I said that that would it only would have happened one time, and I'd have been calling his parents in and say we need to do a behavior intervention plan because we can't accept the student throwing things at teachers or anybody else in the classroom for that matter, any other students. But now you've allowed it to happen for half the school year, and you're wondering why it's still happening. Well, he's gotten away with it for this long, and yeah. you haven't. He's hadn't had any consequences, and the fear was that well, because he's special ed, we can't make him do. We can't do anything. Well, that's very untrue. There's absolutely things you can do, whether he's special ed or not, whether he has an IP or not. There's certain things that can happen. And one of the things that can happen, though, is you can't just ignore it and then one day decide we're going to remove the child and put him in an alternative placement. Because this time he hit the child, he hit the teacher hard enough or he threw something hard enough to where the teacher was injured and had to go get stitches. So wow. it's it's been happening all year, and we haven't done nothing about it, so now we have to address it. And once it was addressed, you know, there was a lot of resistance with this, And but once it was addressed and once it was handled appropriately and there was a plan and they started doing the data, they determined exactly when it was a child would get angry, when he would start doing this. And, wow. you know, they made this into a success story. You know, by the end of the year, he was doing fabulous and he wasn't having these behaviors anymore. Wow. So, But if we ignore it, it's going to just, you know, keep, like I said, it's the some behaviors you can ignore. Some behaviors you have to address head on. And but you can't nitpick them. You can't nitpick, like I said, the, the dress code. We get, I probably get, we probably get a call once a week here about some child that's being threatened to be suspended because of a dress code violation. Well, to wow. me, that's just ludicrous. That is just ludicrous, especially a child with autism who may have a lot of sensory issues and texture mm-hmm. problems and all kind of things. And it's like you know. Think about the child. Let's think about, you know, he's, he or she is showing up at school. They're, you know, they're trying to be on task. You know what? If their shoes are off their feet next to the desk, who cares? Are they, are they yeah. causing a disruption in your class? You know? <laughs> I don't care if the shoes are on. I don't care if the belt is the right color or not or whatever it might be. But those are the, the mm-hmm. silly things I call them that we want to. We don't watch a typical kid that closely, but yet, we put a child in a classroom with special needs, and suddenly, and I'm not saying it happens all the time, but there are, there are incidents where not only does a child have the teacher watching them and possibly a para, but they have 20-something other kids watching them, too. That's tattling on them. He did this. Sure. He did that. Oh, we've seen it. You know? It, it's, yeah. So now we have, the whole, we have the whole class that has their eyes on them. So it's yeah. never a good thing. You know, I kind of want to take this maybe to back to where – 
some of where we started is, you know, I know inclusion is such a big part of your personal philosophy as well as the organization's philosophy. And in a weird way, like it kind of strikes me sometimes that when you have all of these eyes on someone in, in, in the way you just described, it almost promotes segregation. Like, yes, you're in this classroom, but when, when all those eyes are on you, like, I don't know, for me personally, when I feel like a lot of people are watching me, it makes me feel isolated. It makes me feel kind of like alone and kind of against everyone. And it almost is like counterintuitive to the idea of least restrictive environment. And then I wonder how can then that child socialize? Like, are we even letting that kid be successful making friends, developing relationships, developing social skills? Um, and, and truly being part of, like, that classroom community. Yeah, no, we're definitely not doing that. You're right. Um, you, you hit on something there that is why some parents decide that they don't want inclusion. We've seen a trend with younger parents saying that, you know, I would rather a segregated, safe setting for my child. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, they're going to grow up one day, and the world's not a safe setting you know, as a whole, and that the world's not going to be segregated. Um, if you want them to have truly a meaningful life, then you have to start exposing them to the good and the bad at an earlier de- at an earlier age. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that there's a lot of learning opportunities there, you know. And you hate to think, and I did this to my own children, that um, we create learning opportunities for teachers and classmates through your own children. You kind of put them out there realizing that, you know, they don't always realize that they're providing these teaching opportunities, but if we don't ever do that, then we're never going to get kids segregated and accepted. And we have come a long way. I mean, when you think about where we were 30 years ago to today, we've made yeah. great um, strides in, in improving you know, outcomes for kids and kids having more access to general-led classes and um, socialize, you know, social um opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have had. But mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, there we, we try to, when we hear situations like this, and unfortunately, you know, some behaviors you can't change even in teachers as much as you want to. It's people either want to do what's best and want to do what's right, and when mm-hmm. I say that, they accept all children in their classroom and they recognize that, They all come from a variety of diverse backgrounds, and some will have unique needs and some might not. And even kids that are typical kids still may be coming into the classroom with um, a divorced family or a death in the family or something that requires them to have some special attention for a little while. Mm -hmm. And, And kids with disabilities aren't any different. In fact, where kids with disabilities may be more beneficial is that they come with a little money attached to them also where these mm-hmm. other problems don't come with funds attached. So if you have, I always say if you have a caring teacher that, that wants to truly meet the needs of the students in her class, that's the biggest hurdle to overcome. Even if they don't have the skills that they need, to me you can teach those skills. You can't teach that compassion. You can't teach that person that they want to care. They either care or they don't care. And... You know, it's always when we see kids that do the absolute best in classes, it's with teachers that truly care and take a little personal responsibility on the success of that student. That they, they want that child to succeed, and when that child succeeds, they realize that they were a part of that success. 
um, versus the ones that don't really care if a child succeeds or not. And it's 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 a job. I'm coming to my job, and I got this three yeah. days till I retire, and this is just where I am today. You know, if the kid does good, he does. If he doesn't, he doesn't. You know, I believe. You know, one of the things I like to say when I was in um, when I went to the University of New Orleans taking education classes. I never had one single teacher in the education department tell me that when you go into that classroom, you're going to be given 25 perfect little kids. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to have a classroom full of kids with a classroom full of problems. I promise you. But nowhere yeah. did anybody ever tell me. So when I hear teachers say, regular teachers say that things like, "Well, I never signed up to do special ed, or I never signed up for these problems, or whatever," you know, I like to say, "Well, when did they promise you that you weren't going to have these kind of problems? And who told you you was never going to do this?" Yeah. Because it's never told to anybody. The universities aren't telling people that this is all you're going to have. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you mention that because, you know, I, I don't know if I remember telling you. My, my mom's uh, a teacher. She's been a teacher for a really long time. She teaches high school. And she actually um, teaches a lot of kids with IEPs. Um, she teaches a number of classes where she'll have students with IEPs with different um, – disabilities um, of lots of different types, you know, more than just developmental. Um, and she's like, yeah, those are generally not my worst kids. Like the hardest kids, the ones who kind of give me the biggest headache are not those kids. It's just the typically developing kids with, with their problems. Um, so I, I kind of, I don't know, I always think about that of, you know, to your point, it's like you're going to get 25 kids and they're all going to have their problems and it's not a label that is really the problem. It's just it's something else. It's just a situation. It's a trait. It's a thing. Um, just because our kids have a label that comes with it, it doesn't mean that they're going to be truly a problem. And sometimes it seems like they always get labeled that way. Yes. I know. I agree with yeah. you. I think that um, that's very true. Yeah. Um, well, I want to take a quick break. Um, you touched okay. upon a couple of things that I, I want to come back to after the break, particularly charter schools, because I, I just love your perspective, and it's actually helped me personally so much, so I want to make sure we come back to that. So let's take a quick okay. break, play a couple commercials, and we'll talk more with Mary Jacob. Be right back, everybody. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. At AST, we recognize that every child is unique. We are proud to offer what we believe is the most cohesive approach to supporting your child's needs and goals at each stage. From ABA to speech therapy, occupational therapy, and social skills, we have the elements you need to build the plan that is just right for you. One company, one team, with one mission, to support individuals and their families to dream and achieve their full potential. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-727-8274. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host or today's guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's more info at autismtherapies.com. 
Now, back to the program. Hey, welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm joined today by Mary Jacob, the Executive Director of Louisiana Parent Training and Information Center and Families Helping Families of Jefferson. Um, you know, I, I, I wanted to make sure that when we talked today, we chatted a little bit more about charter schools. Because okay. when, when I first met you, this was an issue that I knew pretty much nothing about. And I feel like ever since I met you a few months back, it's like an issue that keeps coming up again and again. And I've, I probably had a half a dozen conversations with people in the charter school system about some of these issues. So it's, I'm really excited to be able to, ha- to talk more about this. You know, you talked before about kids with, with disabilities not necessarily being accepted by the charter school systems. You know, I, I didn't really, under, really well, A, know that was happening when we first spoke, and I also didn't really understand what that really meant. Like, what's, what's the real impact of that on the community? Well, the impact that we see is that as in our area, for example, in, in the city of New Orleans, we have, um, I believe we're up to 40-something charter schools now. Wow. And um, so we have, the, we have the charter schools that are operating, which was previously failed public schools, then we have the Orleans Parish School System that operates the non-failing schools, which is just a little more than a handful of those. They're considered the high-performing schools. Most of them, um, before Hurricane Katrina, was considered magnet schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hurricane Katrina only plays into this because um, this did not happen because of Katrina, but Katrina was um, the schools were failing prior to Hurricane Katrina at the end of the 2004-2005 school year. So at the 2005-2006 school year, um, a lot of these schools were going to go into what they call a recovery school district, which was the State Department of Ed, the Louisiana Department of Education, was going to start running these schools. And then Katrina hit in September, well, at the very end of August, so at the very beginning of the school year, we had that event happen, so that even kind of messed up wow. things more. But anyway... Um, but a lot of people think that we're in this mess in New Orleans because of Katrina. It really isn't because of Katrina. It was already on the way, of, the way to happening because so many of the schools were failing. Uh-huh. So if we, have, if we have the high-performing public schools that the, parish, the Orleans Parish School Board still has, um, and they're not, these are not geographically, um, none of the schools in Orleans Parish anymore are geographically, the students are geographically assigned. You can go mm-hmm. to, basically, you can apply to any school you want to apply to. But the high-performing schools that were previously the magnet schools um, has a selection criteria, so you have to be tested to get accepted into those. Mm-hmm. And then you have the um, charter schools, which for the most part don't test students, but because there are so many people that want in them, there's a um, usually a lottery or some way to get into get into them. But what parents report is when they go there and they say, "I have a child with a disability," they're told that, "Well, we don't take kids with disabilities, or we only yeah. take kids with very mild disabilities, or, or whatever they may be told." So that leaves the remaining um, schools in the republic in the um, in the um, the school district, that recovery school district that the state is running, which 
now looks like the traditional public school option. So what we're having is we're having the traditional public school option starting to look more like a special ed school or special service schools because mm-hmm. the majority of the children that are now being directed there, are definitely an improportionate amount of them, a disproportionate amount of them, are are kids with disabilities. So mm-hmm. instead of having all schools, you know, if you say that we probably have about 13% of the students in Orleans Parish or kids that are identified as having a disability on an IEP, instead of having 13% of all kids in every school like that, we now have schools that have, you know, 1%, 2%, and they may be speech only. And then we have students in a recovery school district, schools that look like they have 50% of kids with disabilities. Mm-hmm. So rather than doing what we're supposed to be doing under IDEA, which is providing students access to, uh, in their least restrictive environment, we're now creating silos of special education schools because we're not giving them access into the charter school system. I mean, I, I feel like the setup you're describing resembles a lot of the community I grew up in in, uh, in New York where it was very siloed. And I, I feel like it was a detriment. Like looking back, it, it took me a very long time to really become aware. And, and I keep thinking of this concept of awareness and how important it is to develop awareness in our community for all, I mean, the host of reasons that are talked about all the time this seems counterintuitive. You're just basically saying, here's all these kids who are never going to become aware, never going to get the opportunity to meet someone with a disability and really appreciate um, who they are. Well, positively, they won't. They, you know, it's, it's a shame. It's, um, we definitely have students that have very limited access as students with what we consider a real disability. I mean, every all, any disability is real, but when you can, yeah. you know, when you can learn so much from a child with a developmental disability that you're not going to learn from a typical child or a child with any kind of intellectual disability that are basically being denied access to the majority. And it's not every charter school, but it is the vast majority of the charter schools yeah. are, are denying these students access to their campuses. So it's... Um, and in today's society where we expect so much more from people, it's, it's sad to see this. You know, if, if we take this back to the civil rights era, if you mm-hmm. just replace the word disabled with black, people, there would be an outcry about this. What do you mean you're not letting, you know, the children that are black or African American into, into this school? Well, it's, to me, it's the new civil rights movement. It's, we're not letting the kids with disabilities now into these schools. And it's really a shame because we've learned through history that we are so much more of a rich culture and society when we are um, surrounded by people that aren't just like us, that, that are different and that bring different skill sets and, and backgrounds and, um, and you know, um, different experiences that they've had to the table than when we're just with people that look just like us that's done the same exact thing that we've done, you know? So, yeah. You know, we we have people now that hire individuals with disabilities because they've been to school with people with disabilities, and they knew that, you know, I never met somebody yeah. that worked so hard in my life that yeah. th- than this person. And, and I want to hire somebody because they're going to they're be dependable. They're going to be thankful they have this job because they, so often they can't find a job. And, and they're going to show up every day and be one of the best employees I have. And, yeah. and, you know, more and more people need to look at people with disabilities and look at how they're 
like us and not not like us. And that's unfortunately, even in schools today, we see teachers and what they do is they pick a part, or and sometimes other students, and it's like this is what's wrong with them. You know, um, Susie um, can't read, or or Susie wears a special brace, or Susie's in a wheelchair, and they don't look at that. Susie's a girl just like I am, and she likes to play checkers, and she likes her baby dolls, and she goes home and mm-hmm. watches the same shows I watch, and her favorite color is blue, just like mine, you know? They, yeah. they don't look at how we're similar. They want to. They tend to concentrate on how they're different, and, and it shouldn't be. We need to look at what, is, what the students' strengths are. What is it that they do really well, and what is it that we can really build on and not worry so much about just the weaknesses and what they'll never be able to do because of these things that they can't do. You know, I, since, since we first talked about charter schools a few months back, you know, I've worked with some more families who have had to apply to a number of different charter schools, some different private schools, and so much of what you described, like I started to see it. It was really hard to get in. It, it there was a lack of options, and that's what I think is kind of important about this because I don't. You said it at the top that this really isn't a New Orleans or Louisiana issue, and I agree with you. Charter schools are picking up a lot of steam across the country. I know in L.A. it is a a big movement, and there's people really excited about the schools, and they're popping up, and and so many good ones are popping up, but it almost feels like, you know, it's limited options. I'm thinking of this one young man in particular and how he has done so great. He has made so much progress. But simply because of a diagnosis, he's going to have 40% of the options of schools that a typically developing kid would have. And I fear that this is going to hold him back because he's a kid who I could see down the road being the independent adult, the employed adult, the successful adult, like all the things we dream of for all of the kids that you're talking about. Like he could be that kid, and is he going to be able to achieve that without all of the options that a typical kid would have. Yeah, it's it's going to take his parents to be strong advocates is what what yeah. it will take. He can he can achieve it. But and that's why it becomes so and that's why centers like ours exist because yeah. parents have to recognize that they are their child's best advocate and they're the one ultimately that's going to have to do the advocating for their children and Next to advocating for your child, the next best thing you can do for your child is to teach them how to advocate for themselves so that they, when you're not standing by them when they're in that classroom and and when they need help, um, being able to um, talk to adults to help them understand what it is that they need help with, that they can do that. So parents have to be the child's first advocate and advocate for them the whole time. It's, it's unfortunately when you have a child with in special education that's receiving special education services or with a disability or even if it's a 504 plan, whatever it might be. Yeah. It, it's, it, it changes though it's not going away tomorrow. It's not going away next year. No. It's every year you go through, you have a new set of teachers, you have to train. You feel like you're becoming the trainer of these people to get them to know who your child is and and to help them understand how your child learns and things. And, and I'll give a little plug for one of the documents we do promote here. It's called All About Please. Me. And you can um, find it on our website at 
shfjefferson.org. It is a um, document that um, a lot of parents use to introduce their child in the beginning of a school year to new teachers, and it kind of like tells them all about the child, everything they need to know about the child. And it's, it's, it was designed by a parent whose child wasn't very verbal, and, and she felt like he wasn't going to be able to go to school and give a lot of information, and she wanted to be able to give the school something that was very um, – you know, compact and had a lot of the important information that she felt like they needed to know about her son. And it was, it's, it's a great project. Um, we have done it, we, we kind of created it here and then we've partnered with the Mississippi Parent Training and Information Center to bring it to the nice. next level. Um, so it's, like I said, it's a real nice document though, that parents can use. Um, the people that use it the most are parents of children with autism. They love it because there's so many of their children are not available or their their language skills aren't um, expressive enough to where they can really um, tell people what their favorite things are. But it goes through everything as far as, yeah. you know, favorite things, what they like, what they don't like, things to, you know, um, things that they may have. And it puts it in a format that's different than the IEP. It's, you don't have to go looking for it. You can just, mm-hmm. it's this nice little document. You can just turn the pages and read about the child. And it's just a much more enjoyable format to look at and to really get to know the child and to get to know the child that's coming into your classroom. It's nice to have something that focuses on what the child likes because I feel like so many special ed documents are focused on deficits. We don't always spend a lot of time on, like, someone's strengths or someone's interests. So it's nice to have uh, another resource like this. Yes, I agree. You, you said something. And it's what's that nice I, about it is it was developed by a parent and for parents, and that's always yeah. a good thing too. We think. Yeah, yeah, definitely, <laughs> totally agree with you. Um, you said before, and it kind of uh, was a gave me a, a segue thought of, um, you know, kids standing up on their own two feet and um, and advocating for themselves and, and voicing their opinions, and you know, it, it, it kind of ties in with. Um, with bullying, you know, and it's such a big concern, I know, for, you know, speaking of the families I work with, you know, kids with autism who, like you said, don't always have uh, communicate, who sometimes have communication issues, it's, is my child going to be able to communicate when someone's picking on them? You know, so it's the, how do we decrease bullying? How do we teach our kids to stand up to bullying or, or to handle bullying? Um, I was kind of curious, you know, what, what is it that you guys recommend, or what is it that you guys are seeing in terms of what's what's been working for maybe parents or for some of the kids that you support and help out? Well, first, bullying is a huge problem nationally, not just you know um, locally, and it's it's a problem not just um, with kids with disabilities, but with lots of different backgrounds. But children with disabilities are bullied on an average of two to three times more frequently than a child without a disability, and disabilities is this, is only second to race for a reason for bullying. So it is a, a huge problem. Um, you know, we always promote children standing up for themselves. Um, we don't promote violence, hitting back, or doing anything like that, but we do believe that the way to stop bullying is to stand up to the bully. Unfortunately, what, ha- what we see happen um, quite often is, let's take a child with autism, for example, that mm-hmm. might also have some behavior issues. So you have a child that typically has, um, has a history of some behavior issues, and they start getting bullied, and the child, the child with autism starts getting aggressive, and at the end of the day, the child with autism is being suspended for um, physically um, hitting somebody, um, and nobody, none of the adults around heard any of the verbal comments to um, bring that on. <laughs> That, that's, yeah. that's probably about as typical as they get out there with bullying. Yep. Um, 
And so then parents, you know, they they don't always know what happened because if the child is nonverbal, the child isn't really expressing to the family what's going on. You know, some children mm-hmm. can verbalize enough to be able to help people understand. Um, it's something that we're still trying to get a hold of and figure out what is the best way. We don't, unfortunately, we're not getting less calls on this topic. If anything, it's increasing. Yeah. Um, we're doing, we're trying to do more and more to bring awareness to it. Um, what often, what often we become dependent on is that other child in that classroom who, who truly cares about other kids and is going to stand up and, and defend the child with the disability, the child that's nonverbal by saying, you know, this is what I've seen, this is what I heard, don't pick on this person, you're being a yeah. bully, whatever it is. Some kids don't feel comfortable standing up to, for another child. Other kids feel totally comfortable with that. Unfortunately, there's not enough of the other kids that feel comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, and if the child already has a history of behaviors, the teachers, for whatever reason, is always going to default, for the most part, on um, on that it's the child started themselves. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like when two kids get in a fight, it's the one that hits back that typically gets caught, not the one that threw the first swing, right. you know. It, yeah. It's no different with this. It's, it's, you know, they can be picked on, you know, unmercifully, and, and sometimes the people, nobody around them sees it or hears it or anything. So the child does get agitated. Um, you know, children with other type of disabilities, you know, what we see happening is that they become very depressed. Um, they don't want to go to school anymore. And even children with autism, this isn't, I shouldn't say other disabilities, this isn't unique just to other disabilities, but children typically do want to go get depressed. And they do. One of the signs mm-hmm. that something's not going right at school, that there is some kind of issue like this, is the kids that, that don't want to go to school anymore, that something about school they don't like anymore. It's usually somebody's picking on them. Somebody is um, not treating them the way that they should be treated. Um, but it's it's really sad and it's very concerning to parents when they say that my child cannot come home and tell me what's wrong. I know something's wrong at school, and I go there and they tell me everything's just fine, nothing's wrong, um, or my child is the problem, and I know that there's something else mm-hmm. going on. And it takes a lot of times you have to put your investigator hat on as a parent and really start talking to other people on the campus to find out what is really going on and how, and how can we stop this. And I don't believe it's ever going to stop until from the top up at each each school campus, from the principal on down, that there's a culture that this is just not acceptable. We never, ever accept this. And sometimes we see it where the teachers are doing it to the students, the teachers are doing it to each other, and the students do it to each other. We did a bullying program um, last year in, in one of the schools in Jefferson Parish, and one of the things that I found was humorous is um, – when the facilitator asked the class, they did it one class at a time, and when the facilitator went through the different classes and asked them, who is the bully in this classroom, everybody in the classroom would always point to one or two kids, the same ones. And those two kids always seemed so shocked, like, what do you mean I'm the bully? I don't see myself being a bully. And often, strangely enough, they were the littlest hmm. kids in the classroom, I thought, which, was cute, which wow. is really unusual. And I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe they've been bullied and they've turned into the bully because of their size even. But um, a lot of times the bullies don't even recognize themselves as the bullies. Now, this is on an elementary campus, so, you know, those children may not recognize themselves as that. I think by the time they're in middle school and high school, uh, the bullies know who they are probably, you know. And they've gotten away with that behavior for so long that they just continue to do it, and it it works for them. I feel like, uh, you know, 
obviously some kids with autism, you know, with the communication delays, it's hard to communicate. But some of the kids who have been able to communicate with me, like what it was like to be bullied and what helped them, um, and you're right, all of them had the same characteristics of I don't want to go to school. That, that, that was literally how we knew something was wrong. I don't want to go to school. Why? And we, we got there. It, it feels like it all ties back to inclusion and social. It's this is more manageable when I have a friend or especially when I have uh-huh. a friend who defends me, as you said. It, it really strikes me as that's such a big part of this key is developing friendships. And, you know, it's not always something you can do in a classroom. Like, I didn't develop my friends in a classroom. I developed my friends playing sports, being part of clubs, um, doing, you know, class, like after-school programs. And there's not a lot of that stuff for kids with disabilities. You know, they, they seem to be somewhat restrictive, whether or not they want to accept or whether or not they can accommodate. And it, it feels like that would be a part we could spend more time on and work on. To, to help support our kids. Yeah, there definitely needs to be more opportunities for inclusive um, recreation and extracurricular activities in communities. We um, definitely see that as a weakness in our community. Um, you know, some places are doing it really well, and some places are really, you know, we've seen a growth and um, and um, more segregated groups where people are creating and, and they're doing it because they think that it's the right thing to do. Children with disabilities mm-hmm. need their own baseball league or need their own football league or soccer league, whatever it might be. Right. Um, the well, the most well-intended intentioned people, but it's just it doesn't set things up for the future for these kids when they think that okay, this is you know we're teaching them and the and the, and the people that are that are creating these opportunities that. Kids with disabilities need to be segregated. They need they need their own things, and they don't always need their own things. What they need is to be included with everybody else and have fun with everybody mm-hmm. else. Because I don't think anybody, you know, I've yet to meet a person with a disability that only wants friends with disabilities. In fact, it's usually the opposite. They want mm-hmm. friends that don't have disabilities, especially once they become high school age. And if they don't drop, and if they don't think they may ever drop, they I need a friend or two that drop at least, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Um, and plus, you know, they 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 want to be able to um, to experience the same things that kids without disabilities experience. They, whether it's job, whether it's going to the prom, whether it's going to the Friday night football game, whatever it might be, they want to have fun. Yeah. They want to do things that everybody else. Kids in elementary schools, they want to be invited to the other kids' birthday parties. I went to somebody's birthday party, and this goes back many years ago because my daughter's twenty nine years old. But I can remember going when she was in first. She was in second grade, and a little girl coming to the birthday party that um, um, was visually impaired and hearing impaired. She um, she had a diagnosis or a classification of, of deaf blonde, and her mama she got in the jumpy house and started bouncing around, and her mama sat there and cried like a baby. And I didn't know what was wrong with her, and I asked her, and she said, "This is the first time my daughter's ever been in one of these, and this is the first wow. birthday party she's ever been invited to in her life, other than her cousins." And I was just like. Oh, my goodness, this is terrible. And I said, you know, my kids get invited to birthday parties all the time, through kindergarten, through first grade. Now they're in second grade. Every kid in the classroom sends them home with an invitation. And she says, this is the first one my child's ever been invited to. And wow. it really it, it stood out back then at how much of an issue it was in regards to that segregation and how, you know, people just think that, you know, uh, they, they don't need to be included or they don't want to be included, where really and truly that is what they want. And I can tell you, this little girl, it made a big deal because, that was a huge turning point in her life and her mama's life and making sure that she was included in a lot of things and, and starting to invite kids to her house, 
typical kids to her house to play with her on her turf and, and establishing those relationships. She realized it empowered her enough to realize that I can I can return this and invite this little girl and one of the other kids at the birthday party to my house and establish this friendship with the family, and it grew into something beautiful. In fact, a little girl stood in a person's wedding one day not too long ago, wow. you know. So, um, you know, things happen for, you know, good. I always say good things happen like that out there, but unfortunately it it should not be the, uh, it, it should be the norm. It shouldn't be the exception, you know. It should yeah. be what happens every day. You know, when I, when I see these stories about kids that do this fabulous thing and everybody gets excited, we see this on Facebook all the time. You know, people want to share things that kids with disabilities or adults with disabilities are doing, and isn't this wonderful and isn't this fabulous? And, and it is wonderful and fabulous. But, you know, a kid without a disability, nobody's going to think it's so wonderful and fabulous for them. And from having two children with learning disabilities, my girls would be the first to tell me that it's not really that big of a deal, Mom. Everybody can do this, you know. Yeah. I just react, it's, Making it into a big deal is like, okay, what are you saying, that I shouldn't be able to do this and it's a big deal that I right. can't do it? And it's like, no, nah, not really. I guess I need to listen to that more often, you know. So sometimes we make big deals out of things that kids with disabilities don't even think they're a big deal, and we shouldn't make a big deal out of them. Just yeah. accept me for who I am and don't try to change me. Um, but I did want to also say that um, there's the national um, – the National Bully Prevention um, Center is located in Minneapolis at Pacer, and just okay. it, it's pacer.org. They have a fabulous um, bullying website. Um, they're one of the technical assistance sites we use for bullying, and they have two awesome interactive websites. One of them is for children, um, um, you know, like elementary age children. The other one is for teens, and um, it's a lot of there's a lot of very kid friendly stuff on there. Um, parents will love the website. Um, kids love the website. It's something that there's a lot of um, really cool stuff that kids can do on there, nice. and a lot of letters that kids write about their experiences. Kids with disabilities write about their experiences being bullied. Um, they, you know, they have some um, big backers in the program um, that's provided a lot of their funding to do it. So it really is a um, awesome site for people to go to. Well, I, I could probably keep talking to you for another hour, but we're, we're actually out of time. Um, I want to give your website one more time because I, I think your guys' website is an incredible resource. Yeah. Um, I know it's uh, www.fhfjefferson.org, um, and I know Correct. you guys are always doing webinars and putting resources like the ones you described um, before. So I, I definitely recommend families check it out because I know I, I've sent a lot of families there and, and they love what you guys have to offer. So well, thank you, um, thank you, and thank you for being here. I'm so glad we were able to uh, to recapture our conversation. Um, it is, as I said, I, I love your perspective um, and just and all that you just bring to the community. So thanks again. Oh well, thank you, thank you for having me. Everyone, hope you have a fabulous week, fabulous weekend. As always, if anything pops up, www.autismtherapies.com or more info at autismtherapies.com. Send us an email. Let us know what's going on. We'll talk to you next time. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of Autism Spectrum Radio. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.autismtherapies.com. Please join us each week for a new episode or visit our archives to listen to and download previous shows.